0: You know, we're starting a new sermon series today, I'm calling Focus on the Family. As you might imagine, it's all about developing relationships. They did a study a few years back and discovered that the best time to talk about relationship building, which, you know, for other people, sanctification building, it's just building that within relationships, right, is in January, because the number one time of family breakup, of family strife, of family conflict, of family problems is, is December. I guess, happy holidays, right? And so we're going to spend some time talking about developing relationships, and, and we're going to do that in the context of marriage and the context of just relationships in general. Um, in Philippians 2.2, Paul writes this. He says, Live together in harmony and love, as though you only had one mind and one spirit between you. I want you to think about a lot of the different relational, uh, I guess, relationships that you have, whether it be your spouse or whether it be your family or whether it be your extended family. Uh, Some of you just got to experience a bigger, a bunch of family this this holiday season. Um, Or think about your relationship at work, or or even in your neighborhood, or if you really want dysfunction, turn on the TV and watch Washington, you know, those kind of things. And then I want you to listen to this again, and this is God's desire to to live together in harmony and love, as though you only had one mind and one spirit between you, this this idea of, of unity. It's something Paul talks about over and over in scriptures. He says, seek unity in the church. Uh, Get rid of the divisions that are between you. It would be great advice for our country to do those kind of same kind of things. And if it's great advice for our country, if it's great advice for the church, then it certainly makes sense that it's great advice in our families. And yet we in our families, we tend to war worse than, than anything you might see in Washington sometimes. And yet... Here's the deal. God's ideal for your relationships, and whether you're married or not, because if, even if you're not married, you're going to get a lot out of this series, because again, it's all about relationships. God's ideal for your relationships is harmony, it's intimacy, this, this love, and it's unity, having this one mind. But the reality, I think, is, you know, we saw it a little bit in the video, and you're lucky enough to kind of tearjerker, and now I'm having to talk, but the reality is, in a lot of our relationships, that's just not the case, is it? I mean, all too often they're filled with disharmony and they're filled with conflict and disappointment and we struggle with them and they're hard and, and we wish they were easier, but, but they're just hard. I, I have people that have shared with me, I, I feel cheated by my marriage. I've had other people say, I, be, I feel cheated by my relationships. I can't find anybody that I just connect with. And there's hundreds and there's thousands of people in Phoenix that are struggling with that very thing. I knew a guy who once said this, when I got married, I started off with the ideal, a few months later it turned into the ordeal, and now I'm looking for a new deal. <laughs> but you know, what happened there? I mean, so all of us know people who have been divorced, some of you have been divorced yourselves, you've experienced that scene. What happens when we get to that point? And there's, the answers vary in different things, but the simple answer is this, that good marriages just don't happen. They take a lot of work, they take a lot of effort. But that's how you get the good marriages. In Ephesians 4, Paul even starts to talk about this stuff. And he says, make every attempt, not just a half-hearted attempt, but every attempt to keep unity of the Spirit. And so as we begin this, this, this series, I actually want to start by giving you some good news. And the good news is this, that you don't have to change your life completely to improve your relationships. You just really don't. To make your marriage better, to make your relationships better. Minor changes in most cases, minor changes will make a major difference in your marriage. Just a minor changes in the way you relate to your husband, to your wife, to your friends, to your girlfriends, to your boyfriends will make a major difference in your relationship. And this, so this morning I just want to simply introduce the series a little bit. I want to give you a, an idea of where we're going and, and we're going to take a look at five ingredients or, or five secrets to, to what makes a marriage successful, to what makes a marriage work. And I want to identify them for you this morning because I want you to begin thinking about them as we go through this process. I, I want you to spend some time evaluating yourself to thinking about those because this only helps not just if you hear, but that if you actually try to work on implementing these things in your relationships. And so the big question then is what are the five things that you need to check up on? I, I used to check up on because I think we sometimes could do a state of the union. Uh, as far as our, our, our marriage goes. You know, you take your car in every three to 5,000 miles to get a checkup. You, you go in once a year to, to the doctor to get a checkup to make sure your body's working. You go into the dentist twice a year, they say, to, 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 to get your teeth checked up. And you do that to make sure that they continue to be healthy for the next period of time. I think it's worth doing a, a marital checkup or a relationship checkup periodically to, to just assess the health of what's going on. And so what are the five ingredients to a satisfying marriage? It's what I want to talk about today. And one of the first ingredients that God gives us in his word is this whole idea of communication. In Proverbs 13, verse 17, it says, Reliable communication permits progress. In other words, for progress to truly take place in a marriage, we're going to have to start talking with each other. And that seems like such an obvious thing, but the problem is that the average couple only talks to each other together alone for four minutes a day. And just think about that a little bit. Hopefully you're on the high side of that, but if you're on the low side, come see me later. You know, But four minutes a day. In fact, a couple will amass 46 hours of television watching in a week, 46 hours, but they will only spend 23 minutes alone talking to one another in a typical week. And the reality is that you just can't make progress unless you begin talking to each other. You know, television is so often an escape. There's a little bit of entertainment that goes on as well. We just come home, we plop down, but we forget to talk to one another. And one of the reasons we have problems communicating, to be honest, is because some of us are guys and some of us are girls, right? I mean, that's just the way that it works. I came across this this week. I read that this week that a woman came into the judge and told him, I want to divorce my husband. And the judge says, well, do you have any grounds? And she said, well, no, but we do own about a half acre up in Flagstaff. The judge says, no, I mean, do you have a grudge? And she says, no, we park the car in front of the house. The judge says, well, does your husband beat you up? And she says, no, I always get up before he does frustrated, the judge says, well, why do you want a divorce? She said, well, we're just not able to communicate anymore. <laughs> and the reality is, I mean, this is an example. Sometimes in marriage, communication just becomes difficult. I don't know. Things have happened. Feelings have been hurt. Sometimes we just don't think to share and, and we get further apart and the problems get bigger. And so we've got to learn to communicate more and more. And we're going to spend some major time in the series learning how to talk to each other, learning how to communicate. Because one of the major reasons why we have communication problems is because we expect the other person in the relationship to think exactly the way we do. It just almost never happens. It's not the way God brought us together. In fact, most of the time we're attracted to our opposites. So if that's true, think about a situation and think about what you think about the situation and think about the exact opposite and that's what your spouse thinks because that's God's sense of humor. But the reality is because of that difference, it creates this spice in marriage. God wants us to communicate, and so just as we think about this, I want you to evaluate yourself on communication in your marriage or in your relationship. If you say we never seem to understand each other, give yourself a one. If you say sometimes we're on the same wavelength, give yourself a five. If you say we schedule time to talk together, give yourself a ten. So, we go by. I promise you, if you take these things seriously, if you try to implement them into your relationship, this number will get bigger. It'll get higher, right? But we've got to take these things seriously. So often I think we come in and we'll listen, but it just doesn't make its way all the way into our heart where we actually do something about it. And so if you take this series seriously, I think it can really help a lot of different things. Okay, second ingredient he gives us is this thing called consideration. Consideration means paying attention to what people say. It's, it's paying attention to the way people feel. And it's not invalidating their feelings by saying, you shouldn't feel that way. One of the most comical things in the world to me is when people tell me how I should feel or how I do feel. Like, how do you know how I feel? You can see how I'm acting. Not very good, I'm sure. But you can't tell how I'm feeling. And yet we invalidate the people in our life's feelings when we say, this is how you're feeling. We're presuming, we're assuming. And um, and there's a saying with that that I can't share from the pulpit. But anyway, it means showing common courtesy treating people with respect, helping them in any way that you can. In Ephesians 4, verse 2, it says this, show your love by being helpful to each other. In other words, consideration means bringing in the groceries even when it's the fourth fourth quarter. It means, guys, allowing both of your wife's feet to be in the car before you pull out of the driveway. You know, those kind of things. Over and over, I say it's the little things that make the difference. It really does, right? I read this a few years ago, but I still think it has a lot of application. Are we, uh, five stages of the married, married cold. First year, baby, darling, I'm worried about that little sniffle that you have, so I've called the paramedics to rush you to Mayo Hospital for that checkup. And a, and a week's rest, and baby, I know you don't like the hospital food, so I'm going to have the meals brought in. I love you, sweetie. Second year, sweetheart, I don't like the sound of that cough. I've arranged Dr. Johnson to make a house call. Let me tuck you into bed, sweetie. Third year, you look like you got a fever. Why don't you drive yourself over to the Medistop and get some medicine? I'll watch the kids, honey. Fourth year, look, be sensible. After you fed and bathed the kids and washed the dishes, you really ought to go to bed. Fifth year, for Pete's sake, do you have to cough so loud? I can't hear the television. Don't you mind going to the other room until the show's over? You sound like a barking dog. A man told me in his first year of marriage, his, his wife would bring him the slippers and his dog came barking. He says, now my dog brings me the slippers and my wife, well, you can finish it. Came across a poem. Two young lovers walk down the street. She tripped and worried, and he worried, be careful, sweet. Now married, they walk down the exact same street, and when she trips, he says, pick up your feet. In James 3.17, a guy comes back into this picture, and he says, wisdom shows itself in being considerate. In other words, he's saying when you're being considerate to somebody, you're being wise. When you're not being considerate, you're being stupid. There will be a negative consequence that follows. And if you who are married and have been inconsiderate to your spouse, know that a negative consequence almost always follows. Almost nothing good happens when we choose to go down that course, that, that, that direction. And so I want you to evaluate yourself in this if you've been thinking about it. If I'm considerate when I'm in a good mood, give yourself a one. If... I help my mate when she asks, or he asks, give yourself a five. If I look for ways to lighten my mate's load, give yourself a ten. But the question really becomes, do you look for ways to lighten their load? That's God's called you. It's part of being a helpmeet in that marriage. It's, it's helping help and support one another as you go through life. How can I make it easier on my spouse? How can I make it easier on the person I'm in a relationship with? How can I lighten the load? Because that's what consideration is. He goes on to the next one and it's compromise. And compromise I think is one of the real marks of love. In 1 Corinthians thirteen five, it says, Love does not demand its own way. So the loving thing to do is to is to not the the unloving thing to do is to try to change your mate. The loving thing to do is, is to just love them the way they are, to not demand our own way. I think many people when they get married, even right before me, they're, they're saying I do, but they're in their head they're thinking I'm gonna redo, right? Because there's a progression in marriage, there's the, you walk down the aisle you, to the altar, right? And then there's a hymn. And yet so many people take that progression home and they keep saying to themselves, I'll alter him, I'll alter him. And it just doesn't work because love does... Some of you got that, that's great. Love does not demand its own way. There's three facts of life. first one is that we will all have conflict in marriage. Anybody who's been married over a year knows this it's true. Every marriage has conflict. Second thing that's true... There are some issues that you will never agree on. You will always be different. Ask anybody who's been married 30 years or more and they'll tell you that's true. And finally, there's a third thing. Compromise is the real evidence of love. Where you meet in the middle, where you learn to be flexible, where you yield your rights, where you learn the art of negotiation, where you learn just to compromise because it's very important to learn this, this, this skill of compromise if your marriage is going to be successful, if it's going to be satisfying over the years. Because there's so many things that we have to learn to compromise on, like vacations. Some of you love to do 52 things in seven days, and some of you like to just do one thing in the seven days. And if, so if you're both going to be happy on vacation, you need to learn to compromise. You need to find something in the middle. Maybe it's like ten things, or well, I don't know, you know, but, or you need to learn to take one kind of vacation one year or the other kind of vacation the next year. If you don't, the one partner will always be bitter and you'll be sowing seeds of bitterness into that relationship. you just got to learn to compromise with the way that you raise your kids and how often you're intimate and the way you spend your money is spent and how often you see the in-laws and, and how you spend your, spend your day off. Because, I mean, what is, it, what is it that makes people think that I can do whatever I want to do when you're married? You can't anymore. You got married. You you gave yourself to another person. You said, we are going to be equal. We're going to walk through life together. I'm going to be your helpmate. You can't be that selfish anymore. In fact, more marriages die from inflexibility than adultery, alcoholism, and or abuse. It's just the fact that we're plain stubborn. That we're rigid. That we don't want to negotiate. That we don't want to compromise. If you need any evidence of this, again, turn on the television and look at what's going on in Washington. Because of the lack of love, they can't get along and they can't work anything out. We want our way, and that's why most marriages die. And so if you're stubborn until you get your way, give yourself a one. If you don't talk about issues that are dividing you, give yourself a negative one. If you stay with an issue until you work it out, give yourself an eight. If both of you go to the second mile with each other, give in. Do more than your fair share, give yourself a ten. The next ingredient God gives is commitment. And the truth is, or the simple truth is, is that it takes commitment to have a satisfying marriage. In Malachi 2, verse 16, he writes, I hate divorce, says the Lord. Make sure you do not break your promise to be faithful to your maid. You know, it's interesting, over the last several years, it seems like the media has taken on a little bit different view of this, that they're, uh, they're kind of maybe discovering the value of commitment more recently. A few years ago in Newsweek, it said, How to stay married? The divorce rate drops as couples try harder to stay together. Lead article read, The age of the disposable marriage is over. Instead of divorcing when times are tough, couples are working hard at keeping their unions intact and finding that the rewards are still worth the effort. Article in USA Today, measuring our quality of life happily married. Heading says, Strong commitment brings satisfaction. Another says, Commitment the key to marriage. What these articles don't take into account is all the people that are scared to death to get married today because they grew up watching divorce, because they have friends that have been divorced, because they've watched that scene or experienced that scene way too many times. And if you look at that scene, you see why God hates divorce. That's no fun for anybody. It's a brutal, horrible experience. And yet God says we've got to learn this whole idea commitment. For the reality is if you'll never build a great marriage if divorce is always going to be an option for you. If it's always back there, right, just lurking in the back as a potential option, then when things get hard, right, it's just too easy to walk out. It's too easy to take that option. When there's things in you, every bone in your body is crying, I've got to get out of this situation. I can't stand it anymore. And that's an option. Eventually, you're just going to say, yeah, I was just talking to a guy the other day at lunch. I've been married for, I'm going to say, seven or eight years and and throughout the entirety of their marriage, whenever they get in a bad argument, she just threatened divorce. Well he said that she started to do that. I didn't mean to, but I started pulling back to protect myself, right? I mean, how can you help if somebody's going to take away your security? You just start pulling back. And finally, after eight years, I guess he snapped and he called her bluff, and they're getting divorced. Not over any real reason, to be honest, just they've refused to get along. They've refused to keep trying. You know, the reality is, God calls us to, to look at commitment differently. He says, I, I want you to learn to throw away the escape, or throw away the key to the escape hatch. Throw away the key to assume it till death do we part. In fact, that's what we say at our marriage vows anyway, isn't it? I made a promise to God that I'm going to keep it, even if it kills me, right? Commitment is what makes marriage great, because without commitment, the marriages don't last. They don't, they don't endure. And so I made a promise before God. That's the part that he cares so much about. And so many people just decide that that wasn't worth it. Commitment, again, is what makes it great. But, but it's also important that as you go through life in your marriage that you don't threaten divorce. That That's not even something that you throw out there in the midst of an argument because it does take away the security. You don't use scare words. They are off limits, hitting below the belt, unacceptable. No matter how mad you are, no matter how angry you are, no matter how much you hate that person at that moment, you don't bring up divorce because it's not an option. It's not even an issue. And that's what commitment means, right? That's the promise we made before God, and He just wants us to keep it. Now, obviously, sharing all that, that's not the way our society views commitment, is it? In fact, most of our society doesn't understand the meaning of commitment at all. Let me give you a definition commitment means being willing to be, being willing to be unhappy for a while until you can work things out. The good marriages just don't happen, they must be worked on. It takes effort. There was a guy who just had his 25th wedding anniversary and he stood up before all of his friends and he says, I want to thank my wife for 15 great years of marriage. Right? <laughs> because happiness isn't uh, always automatic. Sometimes it takes time to, to learn to live with each other, to work through some of the differences, to, to get to that place where, where you mutually respect and encourage one another. So evaluate yourself on this commitment level. If you say, I'm toying with the idea of leaving, give yourself a one. If you... Use divorce as a threat. When you get mad, give yourself a two. If you say divorce is not an option, give yourself a ten. And then he goes on and gives us this last ingredient, and it's Christ. You see, in Divorce Magazine in in March 2002, so it's 11 years old now, but only the first statistic is actually noticeably different right now. Right now in the United States, two out of every five marriages ends in divorce. That, to be honest, is not very good odds. It's actually a little bit worse than that today. However, it also said that in a relationship where people were married in a church, the divorce rate is only one out of 60, with that being the only distinguishing character characteristic. In a marriage where they're married in a church, they attend every Sunday, they pay and re- pray and read the Bible together, the divorce rate is one out of 1,140. And see, in the end, that's, that's the difference that Jesus makes in a marriage. Because you think what Jesus brings to the marriage, that he's the God of hope, right? when you lose hope he's a God of forgiveness and and reconciliation which is most of the time what just needs to happen within the relationship he's a God of healing see we have a God of the possible that's what makes our God so amazing that there's nothing impossible for him and and that's the difference that Jesus makes in a marriage when we let him it may be cliche but it's true the family that prays together stays together now now Before I say amen and we kind of move on, I think it's important for me to note that as we talked about those things, it's really important that you don't listen to the different things and say, oh yeah, this is what the person in my relationship needs to work on, right? my spouse or whatever. That when we go through this series, it's always for you. And and what do you need to work on? Because you may be good at one or two of these, you're not good at all of them. I, I promise you that right now. And the reality is that these are all areas that we need to To learn to grow in relationship with the people around us. These are things that that God calls us to do as part of sanctification. It's things that he calls us to do with him. These are our faith walk. These are our faith steps. And so it's important as we listen to these things, what is it that we need to focus on? And let our spouse or let the other person in the relationship figure out what they need to work on. But I just think it's really important to draw that distinction right now so you don't come up and go, hey, this is what you need to do. Um, Considering this last point too, I I want to just kind of, I know a lot of you got this on the way in. If you didn't, we'll give it to you on the way out. It's a, it says reading through the Bible in one year made easy. We handed this out last year actually and challenged the whole congregation to read through the Bible last year. And, and actually 30 so people took me up on the offer and they read through it. And just the testimonies they've given back as a result have been awesome. Uh, you hear me say over and over that we need to learn the truth in life. That there is an ultimate truth and God gives it to us in his word. But I've I got to tell you, the only way you're going to ever learn that truth is by being in the Word. Uh, we give you this book, and we've invested in this to, to try to make it as easy as possible. It's made easy, so it's, it's like super simple now. Um, but the encouragement is that you would spend, or that you would commit this year to, to try to read through the whole thing. It gives you a wonderful perspective of anything that we'll talk about up here. It gets you to a place where you can know the truth, and you don't need to rely on me or the preacher on TV or, or your friends. That You can just know what God says firsthand. And you are not going to understand everything the first time through, but you will understand way more than you think. And it gives you a context for everything that you'll hear and that we'll talk about. It gives you a context for any Bible study that you go to. It's the number one thing you can do for your faith walk. And so I encourage you that you take this and at least put it in a conspicuous spot so you keep having to pray about doing it, right? You know, and, and if you would, accept the challenge, just that God would bless that experience for you. And so I assure that, and with all that being said, God's people said, Amen. Amen.